0: what's up what's up podcast world chad i'm back at you another episode of this life ain't for everybody today's episode of the podcast Is again brought to you by our friends in Lynchburg, Tennessee, the one and only, the most American company in existence, in my opinion, Jack Daniels. What they've done for myself, our crew, over the years, our lives, our father's lives, our grandpa's lives. Whether it was a breakup, whether it was a good time, a sad time, Jack Daniels has always been for there. The pride that they take in their sour mash, Tennessee whiskey is unparalleled. Enjoy it responsibly. Never allow underage drinking. Jack Daniels, an iconic brand. We are so humbled and proud to be part of the Jack Daniels family. More to come in the future. We can't wait to show you some of the projects we're currently working on with the team at Jack Daniels. Support them. They support conservation. They support America. They support the American hunter, the American provider. And that's what we try to do to the best of our ability. We're so happy about today's podcast because we get to pay homage to the military. We get to learn about the military. We get to talk to a real-life fighter pilot that... You watch Top Gun, and a lot of fighter pilots say, well, don't bring that movie up. But as an American, we got introduced, especially people my age, back in 86, 87, there was a movie come out called Top Gun with Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer and many others that kind of brought to the forefront what fighter pilots do and their training and the academy and everything that goes into it. And we all understand that that's Hollywood. But our man today, his name is Jeremiah. His call name is Biff. I know Biff as um, a mutual friend of ours. Tim Montana introduced us, and I got to learn about him on a on a FaceTime call one night over a Jack Daniels, and I was just in, in just intrigued as heck and to uh, to know that this man has done what he's done in an F sixteen and F eighteen. We're gonna learn all about that today. Biff, welcome, my brother.
1: Hey, Chad. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. To First see you, off,
0: thank you for your service.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for your support.
0: Now, just let me give the viewers that aren't going, or the listeners and viewers, mainly the listeners that aren't going to watch this on YouTube, I hope you do, you're in an, you're in a uniform and you have a full-blown mustache and your hair is perfectly combed, like, I'm very jealous, first of all, of the hair, <laughs> and is is this uniform you're wearing one that we would find you in, in the cockpit?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and, you know, thank you, I appreciate the company the uh... The compliment on my hair and mustache, because if there's one group of people who have better hair than Navy SEALs, and spider pilots. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so today, actually, we were on a no fly day today. Uh, so um, I just was in doing a little bit of work uh, in my office, uh, but we're kind of as the whole coronavirus thing has gone down, uh, we've been on a very much kind of reduced schedule uh, down to like mission essential personnel. Um, and then in my current position, Uh, I have to do a lot of work uh, on some of the classified systems. So I kind of bebop in and out of the office. We have a whole cleaning crew that comes in, sanitize, disinfect, try to keep everyone uh, as safe as possible uh, during this whole coronavirus pandemic.
0: When you say mission essential personnel, at one time in your career, would you have been deemed that? And are you saying that you're not right now and that's why you're not flying?
1: Oh, no, no. We're still uh, very much mission essential personnel uh and i guess there's there's always levels of that you know right uh so by far the most mission essential people are the ones who are either uh, heading out the door or currently downrange uh on deployment um what i do in my current position i'm in a, in a test unit uh, and so we execute operational tests for the navy uh in the f-18 and then the ea-18 growler so we're kind of the final check on new systems uh, radar, software, weapons, things like that—that that are getting put into the Rhino and the Growler before it goes out to the fleet.
0: And it, are these some of the more advanced, uh, updated, evolved aircrafts that our military and our fighter pilots are conducting missions in over in theater currently?
1: Oh yeah. Uh, so the F eighteen, I fly the uh, the I fly three versions of the F eighteen. I fly the F eighteen E, F, and then the EA eighteen G. Uh, so this is the latest version of the F eighteen. Um, obviously, the, the brand-new airplanes out on the street are the F-35s. Uh, or the F-35C, in particular, for the Navy, is going out uh, onto the boat very soon. Uh, it's just kind of um, about a year ago, it was deemed operationally ready, and the first uh, F-35 squadron for the Navy uh, was stood up. The F-35 version in the Air Force and in the Marine Corps has been set up for a couple of years, uh, and very soon uh, the very first F-35C squadron will be out there sailing the seas.
0: Okay, so I, I have to ask some um layman's terms questions to you because when I first met you I was just like man this dude has like you you do it and I and I the the first thing that I always learn about military is that it's it's just a another day to you guys because you are so trained and you're so good at what you do. And then you find a person like me that never enrolled, never went into the military. And I always ask, and I'm sure Tim does too, because Tim gets to work with a lot of military. I always ask Biff, like, do you guys ever look down on people that didn't do it, that didn't go into it, that are maybe trying to pay their respects to the military in a different format or show that they are warriors in a different format. I don't know if that question makes sense, but I I, I always often wonder if a guy like you looks at a guy like me and says, Man, just, he's just, you know, he's just living off of what I've built and what I, and what I defend. And I know that you guys don't, but a lot of times that comes over to me because I always wish like, damn it. I wish I would have had the means of, to do what Biff is doing, because I don't know if you could live a more fulfilled life than first of all defending our freedoms in our country, but then doing it in a freaking F 18 and knowing your way around that and flying it. So, um, talk to me a little bit about your lookout on the American public and how a fighter pilot views the people that you meet like myself or Tim Montana or somebody sure. that didn't necessarily serve.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the, probably the, the common denominator that most everyone's going to have is like, they're really grateful for the opportunity to do it, right? Like I am grateful for every time I get to climb in the cockpit, fire up the motor, strap in and then ride that uh, airplane up in the sky. Like I'm super grateful for doing it. Um, and as far as like, when you look at people who like chose a different path in life, like who didn't serve, I think your podcast name kind of says it all, right? Like this life ain't for everybody. It certainly isn't. Um, and that's fine. You know, that's, that's kind of, that's part of it, right? Like everyone's got to make different choices in life and uh, follow their callings, follow follow their passions, follow what they want to do. For me, um, I knew from day one that I can remember like that serving in the military was going to be a part of my life. And that's maybe not going to be all my life. Um, I've been doing it for 15 years now, active duty. Um, but I kind of knew that it was going to be a part of my life. Like I grew up in a military in a military family. Both my parents were in the army. Uh, my granddaddy was in the air force for 30 years. Uh, and then we kind of got service going all the way back to the revolutionary war in my family. So it was just kind of part of it. My aunts and uncles were all in the military in various branches. My sisters both were in the military. My cousins are all in the military. It's just like being in the military is kind of what we do in, in my family. Um, and it was just kind of like a natural choice for us, but it was certainly not a like a you know you look down on anybody else that doesn't do it. You're just really grateful for the opportunity to be able to serve.
0: So when you say that you that it, you knew from day one, tell me about that. How did you know that it was your calling? And then take take me through the transition of the actual pilot part of it. Um, sure. Did you always have an a, uh, admiration and a uh, just this desire over overwhelming desire that you wanted to fly? Or were you always intrigued by aircraft? And t- take me back to the days when you knew because you how old are you right now? You're you in your mid 30s? 37. It's 37. So you've been serving yeah. since you were 22 years old. Um, take me back to when you knew that you were going to enter and how did it all come about and then transition me into the cockpit?
1: Yeah, so like I said, I, I grew up in a military family. That's kind of what we do. Uh, and so I always kind of figured I would serve in some capacity. Um, I, uh, as I was growing up, I was blind as a bat. I had like 2,800 vision, big old thick Coke bottle uh, glasses. Um, but I was always fascinated with flying, mainly because of my granddaddy. My granddaddy flew bombers in World War II um, and then all through the Cold War. Uh, and so I just grew up, you know, asking granddaddy for World War II stories and flying stories. And then uh, when I was a kid, I think I was probably three or four years old. We had a big family gathering, and we all watched Star Wars, like all three of the original Star Wars, one night. And everybody else fell asleep, but I was just fascinated uh, with Star Wars and being the you know the greatest fighter pilot in the galaxy. Uh, just kind of so I think those two influences, like my granddaddy and Star Wars, um, and then wanting to be in the military, just like really captivated my. Um, like just my attention, and you know, uh, kind of was my goal throughout my whole childhood. And then I kind of figured out about halfway through middle school that uh, when you're blind as a bat, you can't go and fly airplanes. So then I kind of started looking at doing other things in the military, right? Like looking at going to the special operations, going infantry, doing uh, marines. You know, any number of different things uh, in the in just being in the military because that's kind of what I always wanted to do. And then, as I was uh, in high school, so I, I grew up. Uh, I was born in Tennessee. So it's appropriate that you know you got Jack Daniels as one of the sponsors because uh, I always appreciate being back home. Uh, so I was born in Nashville, and I grew up on a little horse farm in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I really just wanted to get out of there and go see the world uh, when it came time to go to school. Um, and so I, I really I fell in love with like uh, snow skiing and whitewater. And so I kind of wanted to go to school out in Colorado. So I was looking at uh, different schools out there, figured out that the Air Force Academy was out there. had gone and visited when I was a little kid. So I started to look at that a little bit more. Um, I went out to the Academy. And when I was there, this was in, I guess, 2000 uh, timeframe, I found out that the Air Force had started allowing uh, laser eye surgery. And so this little dream that had kind of always been on the back burner for me of being able to fly jets suddenly was gonna maybe be a reality. Uh, so I initially didn't get into the Academy. I kind of got into one of the uh, later rounds of admissions. Um, I was actually one day away, I was just gonna to go to school at like CU Boulder or somewhere and just go to Colorado. Um, and then the Congressman called me and was like, hey, congratulations, you're going to the Air Force Academy. I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll go do that then. Um, so I went out to the Academy in 2001 and then, uh, graduated in 2005, 05, full pride. Uh, and then, uh, went into the training pipeline after that.
0: So t- wait, re- before we move on, you, you got, you went and got the surgery and then did not make it into the Academy. And then you had vision right now. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, I got the vision, but I'm still going to go to Colorado. Then the Congressman called you.
1: Yeah, no, sorry. Um, so I went out and did a visit and I was still blind as a bat. Uh, went out and did a visit. Found out that they were allowing the surgery, and that the Air Force would actually do the surgery on me. Um, so I went to school, uh, and then in between, I think it was my uh, two degree year or junior year, um, they uh, I kind of went and they did the I had uh, the PRK uh, surgery done. So it was about a a pretty miserable week of uh, having the laser eye surgery and then the recovery from that. But afterwards, I had 2015 vision, went from 2800 to 2015, my uh, junior year at the Air Force Academy. And then that kind of put me on a path and I could then then go and fly.
0: All right. So that's where it gets interesting. Um, I know everything's interesting, you know, in different aspects. But now you actually are in a position to where you have this back in front of you. Like it was a dream. It was on the back burner. Now here it is, right? Is there, what is like... You look at a UFC fighter, Biff, and you're like, do you get nervous? And heck, yeah, they do, right? They got to be nervous right. to go into that octagon and to, get to, to make money getting punched in the face, right? <laughs> how intimidating was it? And how nervous were you when you finally were like, man, this is reality now. Like, I might be in an F-18 doing maneuvers and missions. And not just flying, you know, you're going to be flying over war, you know, Wartime airfield. You're going to be in theater. You're going to be on missions. Was there thoughts going through your head like, "Well, maybe I don't want this reality anymore," or did you just go full bore when it was time to roll?
1: No, nah, I was pretty into it. Um, but you're taking in baby steps, right? So when I was at the academy, uh you kind of—they've got a whole bunch of aviation programs there. um So the first one that I did was I learned how to fly gliders uh, while I was at school. Learned how to. So I remember the first time, then climbing in in, in a glider and like, okay, I'm gonna fly this. You know, blighter around um, the, having the instructor kind of show me how to do it, how to do the takeoff and the arrow toe and then release and then just kind of act like a little bird flying around there. Did that a couple times was good enough uh, to then. All right, they're going to trust me with the airplane solo, and that's always one of like the for any pilot that's always a a really important time in their aviation career is the first time you get to take an airplane solo, and it's like all right, you're going to break ground, and it's up to you. Uh, ain't nobody else gonna save you when you're up there? You, you gotta do it all yourself. Um, so that was like a really cool growing experience as an aviator, your first solo. Uh, so I did mine on the glider, and then I figured out that I really enjoyed doing that. So then I kind of worked up and started teaching uh, other cadets how to fly in the glider. and then went into powered flight, got my private pilot's license. and then the first time you know they kind of hand you the keys to a powered airplane, they're like, all right, go take it solo. make sure you can come back and land and don't screw it up. Uh, it was pretty cool. And then, uh, that just gradual progression, uh, happens all throughout the rest of training until someday, you know, you're given the keys to, uh, a multimillion dollar fighter jet. And it's like, all right, time to go to war.
0: And that's not intimidating. That wasn't the, that, did did that cause a a certain nervoso right there of, of now you are in the F-18 and you are going over on missions?
1: Uh, you know. Yeah, there's always a little bit, but you just kind of take a step at a time. And you trust your training. You trust your abilities. Uh, you know, there's a lot of guys and a lot of hours that have gone into it to prepare you for it. So that when the time comes, you want that. You know, like when it comes to deployment time, for me, that's all I ever wanted to do was go deploy and, and do your job. you
0: So you do your job with the best training in the world. Are you scared to die? like when to have the mindset of a fighter pilot doing what you do, are you 100% confident in your, in your training and your ability? Obviously you have to be, but is there still a fear in the back of your mind when you start to take off and and get in the position to be in theater?
1: No, not really. You're ready for it.
0: You're ready for it. Do you think you were born with it?
1: Um, certainly, you know, there, there's certainly a, uh, you know, the nature versus nurture debate. debate. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I do think that I was born with the desire to do it. And then that was enabled and grown by my mentors and by the training.
0: Do you think that the conversations with granddaddy and growing up nurtured it more into you of like, like a, yeah, let's go kind of like, kind of like, maybe if you're, maybe if your granddaddy would have happened to be Vince Lombardi, you might've been the same way on the gridiron, but Probably. it was, this was what it was, right? This is what you were destined to do pretty much.
1: Oh yeah. It's one of my favorite things. So like my granddaddy, he was a navigator on B-29s. So he was one of the guys that was firebombing in Tokyo uh, in World War II, flying out of uh, Guam and Marianas uh, primarily. And then um, towards the end of the war, I think they were in Okinawa. Uh, after the after the battles in Okinawa, he was flying out of there. Uh, and we used to sit on stumps down by the lake, and he would sit there and point out all the stars that he used to navigate to and from Japan by. And, you know, tell was me stories about, like, when uh, they were training, I think it was in uh, Guam, or maybe somewhere. Uh, like, he was in training. It was a Sunday mission that they were going on and, uh, granddaddy really wanted to go to church. And so he slid to another crew to go later in the afternoon. His crew took off and then they flew into a mountain and everybody was killed. So I think from a, uh, early age, you just sort of accept that when you sign on the dotted line to join the military, you know, you're, you're going up to and including your life. You know, that's just kind of a given. That's what, that's part of it. Everybody's got to die sometime, right? Might as well go out doing something that you love um so like going back to your your question about you know are you scared I mean yeah there's always a little bit of nervousness there but you know that you're prepared and it's just a part of your everyday reality you know I kind of was honestly a little bit surprised after I made it into my 30s because I didn't really think I was ever going to make it there and then after you make it to 30 you're like oh well I guess I I guess I'll keep doing this. This is having a Wait good time. Wait a minute, though. Did
0: you, are you a daredevil and you're an adrenaline junkie and you thought you might get in a motorcycle wreck jumping over a ditch in your off season when you're not <laughs> flying? Or did you think that you wouldn't make it into your thirties because you'd be killed on a mission?
1: Um, I mean, I figured one of the two is going to probably get you at some point. Uh, I'm not, I don't think that I'm necessarily a, a daredevil or an adrenaline junkie. Um, some of really? my, my mom might, my mom might disagree with you, but. Uh, no, I mean, I just kind of figured that it was going to happen, uh, at some point. And then, um, the whole idea is you try to work to keep that off as long as possible. Right. And be as good as possible. Uh, and then maybe it doesn't. And so far I'm still here.
0: So when you're not there, do you want to be there with your brothers? Do you want to be like all the time? absolutely so if you had it your way would you work 40 hours a week overseas and mission and then come back here for the weekend and then go back over there i know that that's far-fetched but yeah. if you had it your way would you be over there all the time doing that um on just one deployment after the next
1: you know um it's interesting right because when as soon as i always kind of figured like we usually do about six month deployments or so so the first you know the first couple months that you're there are awesome you're getting into the fight you're getting you're in a, a good battle rhythm by month four or five you're kind of tired of the same thing and it becomes groundhog day and then by month six you're really kind of ready to go home uh for a bit and then usually uh about a week after i would get home is like okay i'm ready to go back wow um, so yeah i mean and if they <laughs> were to come to me tomorrow and say hey you want to go deploy Pfft, my bag's already packed i'm ready to go
0: it's like you're, it's like you're a musician. It's like the same theory. And you're talking about giving your life up and fighting and war as a musician is like, can't wait to get off the road and go see my family. But then he's there for (laughs) three or she's there for three or four days. They're like, can't wait to go back out and see the fans and be around the energy of the crowd. Right. It's like just just different levels. And, and, and I know that that's, uh, it's not like a, the exact correlation or or it's consistent with what you do as a fighter pilot but it just blows my mind that when you're in enemy territory like that that you can't wait to get back it just doesn't make sense it's not it doesn't trigger in somebody in some normal person's not normal like you're not normal i'm not saying that i'm just saying that people that don't do it like myself it doesn't trigger me like how can he How could you ever say that, that you can't wait to get back to enemy territory, but you hear it consistently through warriors like yourself, that they, that's what they live for.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, everyone, you know, man's search for meaning and purpose, right? Like you want to do things in your life that you derive meaning and purpose from. Uh, for me, there's been no greater experience than going to war, like going to war I got better when I went to war uh, because you find real purpose there. Like you never matter any more, particularly as a fighter pilot, right? Like flying over in Afghanistan and you're, you are the close air support for the 18 year old on the ground with a rifle. Like you are his lifeline. You are the key that can bring him home uh, with the weapons and the ordnance that you bring. Right. So it's like all about, can I put bombs exactly where they need to be exactly when they need to be there get there save those guys bring them back home like there's nothing in the world uh that's like that there's absolutely nothing in the world that's like that and you never matter more than in those moments that's important
0: and how many of those quote unquote moments have you been involved in biff Uh, all right wait first off but i want to make sure that i respect your intel and everything is it kosher for a person in your status and your experience and your um, tenure with the military to be able to talk about specifics of being over there? Is it kosher? Is it ethical? And, and then obviously the next, part of that question would be the the warriors that come back and take it to the levels of Hollywood and scripted and make and make money off of what they experienced in that I don't know if you're even allowed to talk about that point of view of what you've experienced and how you how do you look at the ones that come back and write the books or get the movie deals sure there's different levels of talking about it can you talk about it on a podcast can you talk about it around a campfire emotionally can you manage it and talk about it with what you've experienced and seen I don't want to, I don't want to disrespect any of those, of those parts of what we're getting into here as far as the actual missions go. So just tell me where you stand on that a little bit.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, obviously we don't talk about anything classified, right? Like I'm not going to reveal classified data or uh, specifics of missions or techniques, tactics, procedures, things like that. So you don't get into any of that stuff. Um, But it's, I think it's actually really important to be able to talk about what happened um, there's a great book called uh, "On Combat and On Killing," which were written by an army psychologist. Uh, that talk about, you know, how is it that you find a place for the experiences in combat? Uh, and one of the things they talks about is it's important to be able to talk about it and to find a way to divorce the memory from the emotion of it, right? Like if you can do that and you can hold on to the memories but divorce it from the emotion, that's how you prevent uh, the post traumatic stress. From becoming post traumatic stress disorder. Um, so it's important to talk about it. Honestly, uh, the best place to talk about it certainly is around a campfire. Um, and, you know, guys that take it and write books and go to Hollywood, I, I certainly got no problem with that. Uh, it's probably not gonna be a path that I'm gonna take. Um, but it, I think it is very important to be able to talk about that kind of stuff. And, you know, for me, like my experience, and, and especially, you know, being a pilot, you're pretty far removed from a lot of the um, person-to-person violence, you know, that a guy would experience on the ground, as uh, you know, uh, in ground combat and hand-to-hand combat. You know, we're pretty far removed from that, um, and so it's a different experience. Certainly, uh, flying uh, combat versus being on the ground, and so they are there are two different experiences. Um, but uh, it's important to be able to find a place for it and to be able to talk about it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't have any problems with, with talking about it. I think it's important to do. So
0: when you're in, on a deployment of six months and you, you're stationed in a particular spot, when you're stationed as a fighter pilot, are you with the other segments of the military, as far as the ground, you know, the people on the ground, are you around Marines? Are you around um, the army? Are you around any special forces? Are the special forces in a different spot to where that nobody ever knows where they're at because they're on a, you know, very high Intel secret mission. Do sure. you see the devastation as a fighter pilot though? When you come back, are you around the medics? Do you see what's going on? Or are you guys held away from all of that as well?
1: No, um, well, You know, every deployment location is different. Uh, So I did my first deployment uh, over to Afghanistan. And so we were flying out of Bagram Air Base over in Afghanistan, which is just north of Kabul up in the mountains. Um, And uh, at Bagram, there's the whole mess of everybody Uh, from all the services, all the special operations. um, We would do uh, missions every day uh, with the special operations folks. And so we'd go over there, compound, have a face-to-face, plan out what those guys are going to execute. Uh, go back, figure out what our timelines are going to be and when we're going to be overhead to provide support to them. Um, So, yeah, we kind of would liaise with those guys on a daily basis. Same thing with the ground units. Uh, If we're supporting a conventional Army or a conventional Marine ground unit, we would have uh, what's called a glow or a ground liaison officer who is like an Army guy who's assigned to our uh, fighter squadron as kind of the liaison back and forth between the ground units and us. And then we could call up the JTACs. uh, So the joint terminal air attack controllers um, uh, who are, you know, either air force or sometimes other joint services uh, who are specialists in employing air power. Uh, So they're running around with the units uh, on the ground. And then they're, they're the guy that I'm talking to on the radio who's calling for fires uh giving me what's called a nine-line briefing, which is where uh they transfer information about where they want us to put weapons and effects down. Uh and so like yeah, you're you're involved with those guys on a daily basis. And then when you come back to Bagram, uh there's a big hospital there in Bagram. And so when you're downtime, a lot of us would go over there to the to the hospital, volunteer, uh, see some of the soldiers who are wounded, take care, you know, roll bandages, all that kind of thing. Um so no, you're 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 in it uh at least i I was on my first deployment significantly on some of the other ones like where you're kind of stationed off uh maybe you only you don't see a lot of the other uh ground combat elements um when you're like stationed outside of the the individual country um but when we're in afghanistan yeah you saw that stuff on a daily basis
0: and were you prepared for that did it has it did it get to that point to where you had to talk about that? Because I would assume seeing your brothers and sisters in harm's way and wounded and volunteering at a hospital like that would leave images in your mind of, man, this is, this is real. This is like, can you get that out of your head? Did that mess you up at all? Or have you always had the mental capacity to be able to separate it?
1: I was always pretty good at separating it. Um, it just, it really reinforces how important it is to do a good job right like to be the guy that doesn't screw up you know that there's uh i don't know if you've ever seen that movie the right stuff uh where it kind of talks about like test pilots in the 1950s and you know the kind of the prayer of almost every single pilot before they go on a mission or do anything is dear lord please don't let me screw up uh so that's kind of like the most important thing there is just to not you know so being around that yeah i don't think it It certainly left me with indelible images uh, and memories, but it didn't, I don't think it like on an emotional level has hindered me. Um, It just left me with a real impression of how important it is to do a good job.
0: Did you ever not, did you ever question yourself? Did you ever get questioned on a mission to where you didn't do a good job or a mistake was made? Is it, is it inevitable that a mistake will be made?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've never flown a perfect sortie yet. Uh, nobody has, um, and thankfully, on the on the, the combat missions, I didn't. Ha- I haven't had anything that was went absolutely terribly wrong, uh, where I screwed up so bad that you know you're gonna get hung out to dry or something like that. Thankfully, I've I've been able to. Um, I've both been lucky and good, and like my grandmother said, it's better to be lucky than good. Sometimes, um, so thankfully, no, I haven't had any of those experiences uh where you really screw something up bad um you know and the the whole thing is just keep working on your training and remember it follow through with it stick to the procedures uh stick to the basics and you know you usually keep you stay keep you safe
0: when you're a fighter pilot in theater biff are you always on call or do you have a strict schedule or could it be at any given time of a 24 hour period that your radio goes off and you get a knock on the door, whatever, however it goes down and you're in that Mm -hmm. cockpit and you're ready. And and I'm, I'm trying to say, is there any socializing? Is there a time to where you can go relieve stress with the guys on the bar at the base and get a cocktail or does a fighter pilot have to be 100% clean and ready to go at all times when he, he or she's over there?
1: No, man, uh, there's a whole schedule that you're on. Um, so like when you're on a deployment, uh, particularly, so in, in the Air Force, uh, so uh, we would deploy as squadrons, and we would usually operate on a twenty four hour schedule, so that there was always airplanes flying at some point. And so yeah, you have to schedule people uh, smartly to give them the right rest and the right relaxation time uh, to then you know kind of reset, get ready to fly again the next day. Um, so yeah, like the you're you're always on on a, on a kind of schedule uh, for that. Some places, like uh, when we're in Afghanistan, you'd also be standing alert. So there would be a guy who would be scheduled to stand alert, or uh, there would be usually uh, two crews that were on, a, on alert because you always fly at least as a, as a two-ship or two airplanes flying together. So you'd stand an alert shift where uh, you have the jets, what we call hot cocked, so they're all ready to go. Um, and you would have to be in the squadron around the jets, and you kind of set a different alert posture. Right? So that if the, if the horn goes off and they need uh, the alert jets to launch, you could then be airborne in about 15 minutes uh, from the time the call came in. Um, I think my best alert launch was uh, six minutes from the time the horn went off till we were wheels in the well. Uh, and those, I mean, I think probably those are my favorite deployment memories as launching on alert because it was literally like we had this old World War II air siren that when the alert phone would ring, it's literally a, a red phone that was sitting at the operations desk where the kind of, you control and monitor daily operations. When that alert phone goes off, picks it up, you know, blasts an air horn. Somebody goes and grabs the World War II alert siren. And, and literally, like, everyone goes sprinting to the jets who's on the alert crew. Uh, you're jumping in, throwing your gear on, turning the motors on. Uh, there's a big call that goes out over the radio, alert, launch, alert, launch, alert, launch. So they wave off all their airplanes. The runway gets cleared for you. You blast and then you're immediately launching. And you know, when they call the alert, it's usually because guys are getting shot at, uh, and guys are dying and they need help. So you always know when you're launching on alert, you're going to get right into it. So yeah, that's probably some of the most adrenaline, uh, filled moments flying a jet is launching on alert. And when
0: you launch, how, how long is that runway? How long is it from accelerations, you know, startup to when you take off? Is it, is it a bush plane like 40 feet or do you need an entire one mile <laughs> runway to launch? How, how, how far, how long does it take to get off the ground in an F-18? Yeah. Uh,
1: so the f eight. so I, when I was doing that, I was flying F-15 East. So I, I was a, a strike Eagle guy in the Air Force. Um, and then what I'm doing flying F-18s right now with the Navy uh, I've only been doing this for about two and a half years. I'm just on an exchange. I'm like the Air Force Air Force dude who's on loan to a Navy squadron uh, for a little bit. So kind of seeing how the other half lives. Um, so when I was flying f 15s, uh, how long your takeoff roll is always dependent on how heavy you are uh, and then the altitude that you're at. So at Bagram, you're sitting up at, I think the elevation, kill elevation at Bagram was around 5,000 feet. Uh, and then we were taking off loaded for bear uh with lots of bombs and gas, uh which is one of the kind of the main advantages of flying a strike eagle is you got bombs, gas, and two people in the cockpit uh who are working to employ those. Um so I think our takeoff roll at Bagram was somewhere around I don't know 3, 000 feet, you know, somewhere in somewhere in there. So about half a mile, uh maybe a quarter to a half mile or so of a takeoff roll. And then uh because it was you know you're in the middle of Afghanistan, we're doing combat takeoffs. where. Uh, You want to get going as fast as you can uh, and then get up as high as you can outside of any of the uh, the small arms uh, envelope or for people shooting at you at the end of the runway. Um, So those are always like super fun takeoffs because you basically leave the thing plugged in max AB, get going as fast as you can, then stand it on its end and get up high.
0: Which is how fast?
1: Uh, So usually I think we would pull, I mean, somewhere around like 400 knots or so, 400, 450 knots. Basically try to get going as fast as you can. Uh, And then by the time you hit the end of the runway and the end of the fence, uh, because the rest of the, right outside the fence is Indian country. Uh, So then you kind of pull right at the fence.
0: And and 450 knots is how many MPH?
1: Uh, You're doing over 500 miles an hour. On the ground? Yeah, you're getting after it.
0: Good night. How awesome is that? So then you pull, when you say you pull up the, the, the nose of the F-18 is pointed straight up into the air.
1: Yeah. Not, not quite 90 degrees up. Uh, again, you, you it's all about energy management. Um, so flying a fighter is all about managing your energy, uh, for, and and doing it smartly. Right. So like, I want to get going as fast as I can while I'm low, I'm going to get pulled up. But I, I, if I go straight bullseye nose high, I'm going to bleed off my energy really quickly. Uh, and then I'm just going to be a grape up there that somebody can shoot. So I'm usually going to pull up between like 40 to 60 degrees, nose high, somewhere in there. Feels kind of like it's standing on its end. The earth kind of falls away behind you as you rocket up. Uh, and then you make sure that you don't just stay in that attitude because you're going to fall out of the sky eventually. Uh, you got to maintain a tactical airspeed. So rolling over on your back, pulling down, getting back to level flight, and then continuing to accelerate. It's, they're pretty fun.
0: Yeah, I could see, I, I mean, my, my feeling in my body is probably not as is what yours is, but it's close. Like, I'm like, man, I want to do that. Like you, so you roll over on the back. So the plane's upside down and then that's how you f- come down a little bit and get into normal airspeed.
1: Yep. Yeah. Cause that's the fastest way to get back to level flight is to roll is to roll inverted and pull versus a, a bunt where you can, where you're kind of pushing. And that's uh so you're, you'd be doing negative G's and kind of floating up in the cockpit you always want to maintain positive G's uh, because it's a faster way to do it, and it's way more comfortable on the body. And plus, you know, you're flying a fighter for a reason. Go upside down.
0: So, as a commercial pilot, you're you have air traffic control to watch the skies, and they have towers everywhere, and they're watching mm-hmm. whether it's weather. They're watching other aircrafts. Is is as a tower built on in a war zone? Do you guys construct a tower and erect something that you have an air traffic control guy that's doing the same thing? Um, that a that a, a, a ATC person would be doing yep. commercially in America,
1: yeah, yeah. So like you'll have a you know the the control tower at Bagram was literally the old control tower. Uh, we built they built a new one a couple of years after we took it over. Uh, you know in two thousand and one, but like when they first established the airfield in two thousand and one, uh, they had combat controllers that went in took over the airfield uh, and they were using like the old like Afghani Russian Uh, control tower for a long time controlling airplanes in and out of the airfield they eventually built a normal one Uh, so there's a big control tower there at bagram just like any other airfield uh and it's staffed with just military controllers
0: when the siren goes off and that red phone rings and you're on you know you're on alert and you're in the cockpit is there uh is it vary with how far you are obviously it does so <clears throat> Give me some ideas of how far were you from that combat zone to where you were headed, you know, to where you were getting in position to start firefight or drop bombs. Is it yeah. miles? Is it hundreds of miles? How far is it?
1: Uh, it, it, would, it could be any of the above. Uh, a lot of the times, like when I was there, uh, we were flying primarily in, in the eastern part of Afghanistan, up in the mountains, uh, places where. Artillery couldn't reach uh, to get to our soldiers on the ground. Um, so we were their fire support. Uh, so usually it would be within a couple hundred miles, which in, a, you know, in an F-15 you can cover pretty quickly. Um, and then down to my closest alert launch was I launched off the runway, did a circle, and then dropped a bomb a mile off of the end of the runway because there was a firefight going on right outside the base.
0: Wow. Yeah,
1: that was kind of a wild one.
0: An F-18 gets up, goes a mile, drops the bomb, then comes back and lands? Or do you go back up and you, you're ready for the next the next command? From
1: Yeah, we stayed up there for a while in that, in that particular instance because the, the firefight was going on for a while. So we stayed overhead for probably uh, 30 minutes or so, dropped a couple of weapons, uh, and they had launched helicopters from the base. So we had Apaches on station as well. Yeah, that, it was kind of a – Bagram's not a place that uh, you should attack. It, that's really a dumb move on the Taliban's part. It was. Yeah, it was really dumb. They didn't so, make it out.
0: They did not. No. Now, and you can answer, you don't have to answer, obviously, but we're, is there a lot of casualties on our side when somebody gets close to the base like that? Do they catch us by surprise? Thankfully, no. Wow, that's so awesome. Yeah,
1: thankfully, no. We didn't lose anybody. There was. A, this was in, what was this, 2010, right? Uh, they actually came up to, they actually tried to jump into the wire. Uh, unfortunately, they went into the, they picked a really poor place to attack because they attacked the rangers compound uh and so that's not a place you want to attack on a base
0: just because rangers are such badasses yeah why?
1: they're pretty awesome they're some of my favorite people in the world
0: i love them too i know i've got i've had the pleasure of meeting several through hunting and through our brands and and went down to Florida and got to go to the ranger battalion down there and hang with them and train with them, do some of the snake training and, and uh, God is so cool. Why, why are they, why do you consider them some of the coolest? Are they, are they special forces um, to a point to where everything that they're doing from jumping out of airplanes to the ground support, their missions are just, you just never know what you're going to get as a ranger. What makes them so invaluable?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I ain't a Ranger, um, but they're awesome individuals. So, you know, the Ranger Regiment in particular is America's premier light infantry unit, right? So they're, they're there, uh, and they're a special operations unit, so they can you know, come in by, uh, by air. They do a lot of uh, water training as well. Uh, they're light infantry, so mobile, uh, whether they're using vehicles or helicopters, any number of different insertion methods. Um, but they bring a lot of punch uh they punch above their weight for sure uh and then their training is just phenomenal uh and they're all very highly motivated individuals which uh, matters a lot in a firefight
0: and when you when you get up over the top of a firefight and you're looking down on it visually can you see a lot of what's going on or is everything being said to you through obviously through your Hmm. audio capture
1: yeah, uh, so you're, you're using your eyes, uh, absolutely. And most, one of the most important things as a fighter pod is to look the freak outside. Uh, so uh, a lot of it's going to depend on the weather, right? So sometimes the enemy really likes to attack when uh, it gets cloudy and stormy because now that is going to impede our ability to use our eyeballs uh, from on high or to use the sensors that are on the airplane. Uh, so we have like the targeting pod which is like if you ever watch CNN and you're seeing the video, of like it's a black and white video of a building and it's sitting there in a the crosshairs and all of a sudden you see this little black thing uh, goes flying through the screen and then the building explodes. I mean, that, that's, you're looking at a targeting pod video. So we're using a combination of looking over the side, uh, using the targeting pod and then working with those JTACs uh, on the ground or any other ra- units on the ground that we can talk to on the radio to form a combined picture of what the battle space looks like. Like, where are the bad guys? Let me go there and kill them.
0: And how, when you say you're using your vision, so how f- high are you? How, what, are you at 10,000 feet? Or are you at 800 feet? It
1: depends. Uh, it, it honestly depends on uh, the threat environment that you're in, right? Because if I uh, start flying lower and getting down closer, then everybody with a rifle suddenly looks up at you and starts shooting at you. Uh, so it depends on the threat environment, right? Uh, if I get too far away, now I can't use my eyes and now I have to use just the sensors in in the airplane. So we like to kind of hang, uh, in a close air support role in the 10 to 20,000 foot regime. Uh, that kind of, it's a, it's a good sweet spot between it gives you enough look down that you can see the whole battle space, both with your eyes and with the sensors, and then you can employ weapons uh, and get them the right, uh, kinematic effects
0: and how many weapons are we talking on on your fighter jet when you're over there what you have bombs you have you have machine gun artillery on there that you can go down lower and and talk to me about what are they equipped with
1: yeah uh so every airplane is slightly different as far as what the loadout is uh thankfully flew the the mighty f-15e strike eagle uh which carries the most bombs and the most gas and the most sa of anybody in theater um, so we would typically fly with a mix, uh, of, of weapons and it was always kind of dependent on, on what theater we were in. Uh, you, you use a mix of JDM, So the joint direct attack munitions, a GPS guided bomb, we would fly with a kind of uh, a cocktail of those 500 pound to 2000 pound versions of it. And then you can also have some low collateral damage versions of it that basically don't have as much blast, uh, into them. Uh, and then all the way down to 250 pound versions of the weapon. So those are, those are great weapons because they're precision bombs. They're easily, to, they're easily targetable, and you can provide a, a wide range of effects, both against buildings, against vehicles, and against personnel. Um, we would also apply laser-guided bombs. So now instead of using the GPS, now the bomb is seeking a little bit of laser energy that you're squirting out through that targeting pod, right? So I can find a guy, I can track him with my laser, and now this bomb that I drop is now looking for that laser spot. Uh, so those are great uh, weapons as well. So that we always fly a mix of, of GPS and laser-guided weapons. We can fly with uh, dumb bombs as well. Very rarely, you know, in, in the conflicts ever since 2001, you know, it's pretty much all uh, smart weapons. You just don't use the dumb, the dumb, the dumb bombs uh, as much anymore just because you have to be so precise uh, with your employments so it's not, you know, cause excess collateral damage. Uh, and then, yeah, we still got a gun. Uh, so the gun on the strike Eagle and on the F-18 is a 20 millimeter cannon. Uh, so you carry around 500 rounds of that in the, uh, in the strike Eagle, uh, it's 20 millimeter shell. It's basically, uh, and as long as it, it as it hits with enough velocity, it's got a small explosive charge, kind of like throwing a small hand grenade at somebody. Um, uh, so that's, it can be a very effective weapon, uh, if you're good with it. Uh, but again, that goes back to the skill of the pilot. You look at another airplane like the A-10, right? So that's an airplane that was built around the gun. So it's got a 30-millimeter cannon. So it's this giant freaking shell uh, that can penetrate armor. Um, so that is an, um, uh, an incredible weapon, and they carry over a 1,000 rounds of that on every single one of those airplanes. And when they're flying slow and with their uh, really good ability with that gun, the A-10 is a monster uh, in a close-air support scenario.
0: And what about you as the pilot? the talent Mm -hmm. of Biff. Are you, (laughs) are you good on all the weapons you just named off on the F 18 and the, the, the fully loaded version that you were lucky enough to be flying?
1: No, I don't know that I'm talented, but I'm pretty darn good at it. Are you? Yeah, I'm good.
0: Okay. So I want to talk about this and it's not arrogant to me to hear you say this. I just, I'm very infatuated with your ability to go up and be able to hit targets with, with 20 millimeter, 500 rounds you have bombs you have you're equipped with all of this different variation of weaponry what made you is it your instincts was it all training when you're in theater is it all instinctual now are you going back because you can't get a manual out you can't read anything you don't have time for that is it a hundred percent instincts now if it's not if you say that you don't know if it's talent, what makes you be able to have that adrenaline going? Cause now you're going from a Travis Pastrana, who's a mutual friend of you and Tim and all these guys, you go from that adrenaline, but now you have to be responsible enough to be aiming weapons and taking lives and protecting our, our soldiers and getting him and her out yeah. of there. What makes you good at it? It's
1: all the training. Man. It's, it's all, all training. training. It's all training. So it's, and it's, and it's cause you want to get the training to a level that the training is instinct, right? So that I don't have to think about how to fly it. I don't have to think about how to drop a bomb. I don't have to think about where to put the airplane to be on the right parameters to employ the gun. Because like my training, and I've done so many repetitions of it uh, in training that in combat, it's easy, right? Like, so the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in combat. That's true across the board. Uh, from your ability to employment. So it's, you don't even have to think about it because you know exactly what to do. And that's all just done by countless repetitions and training. Uh, so if you're getting to the point where you are, like if I'm feeling a lot of adrenaline while I'm in combat, to me, that's almost a, that's a real negative because I shouldn't be feeling that. I should be very comfortable with it. I should be just acting like I do every single day in training. Uh, it just is happening for real.
0: So it just—it's not like riding a bike, you're saying, or is it?
1: No, it's exactly like riding a bike.
0: So you don't get the adrenaline rush because you're in a comfort zone. It'd be like a baseball player that gets up to the plate and he's squeezing the bat with all of his muscles and he's squeezing so hard he can't swing. You're saying that you got to be relaxed in there. Your muscle memory has to come in. You just got to be yeah. just floating around in the cockpit, kind of.
1: Yeah, and if you know, it's like you know, finding that flow state, right? We talk uh, a lot about in in fighter aviation. We talk about having flow. Uh, and that's kind of a a play on words because we want to always have first launch opportunity in an air to air, uh, arena. So I'm looking like, I want to be able to shoot you before you can shoot me. Right. So that's, and that kind of goes back to the history of warfare, right? Like if I can only punch you and then you show up with a club and you can hit me with a club. Now you've got first launch opportunity. Now, if I show up and, and I've got a bow and arrow and you've got a club, I have first launch opportunity. Grow that thing out. That's the same thing that you have uh, in the fighter jet, right? Like if I've got first launch opportunity, I can hit you before you can hit me. I'm going to win, right? So that's the flow part of it. But you also want to have mental flow, you know, mental and physical flow where everything's working well. You and your Wizzo, uh are kind of on the same page. You, your Wizzo, the JTAC, the way that the ground uh, element is moving, what they're doing. Like if you've got flow, you're in it. Uh then everything starts to work well. Um, so yeah, we're always looking for flow. So and your, wiz- just, your wizard behind to... you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had a kind of a cool experience. Um, so I've gotten to sit in both seats. Uh, it's like when I was in Afghanistan, I was actually a wizard. I was a backseater. Um, so I started out as a wizard, did four and a half years as a wizard and then got the opportunity to go back to pilot training and move six feet forward. And thankfully went back to the F 15. Uh, so I have just kind of seen it from both seats, which is kind of a cool experience for me. Uh, And that's why I really like flying on a two seat cockpit because I kind of know what the Wizzo is doing and, uh, can hopefully keep that mind meld a little bit better. Uh, so it's more effective in combat. When,
0: when you can alternate back and forth as, uh, you've done both, you did four years as a Wizzo, and then you're up front. Um, is it always the same two guys on a mission? Is it you, you, so you guys will alternate in and out of those seats, even when you're over in theater. So you guys all have to be in tune with each other.
1: Yeah, um, so obviously like a, a wizzo is always gonna fly in the back seat. The pilot's, you know, usually gonna fly in the front seat. Right. Um, and different squadrons will do it different ways. Uh we'll call it we call it hard crewing, uh, when you are uh always gonna fly with the same wizzo. Um kind of the way that uh, over my couple deployments, I think I've kind of found that it works best is you start out hard crewed uh for a little while because you get to learn your wizos, uh, habit patterns and, and kind of flow. and He gets to learn yours or she gets to learn yours. Um, and you can be a really effective team. Like with guys that I've been hard crewed with, we really? almost don't even have to talk uh, after a couple of missions because I just know what he's doing and thinking and he knows, or she knows what I'm doing and thinking and we can kind of set each other up. Uh, so when you're hard crewed like that, you can get into a really, you know, you got flow. Um, what that can also lead to, right, on a, on a bigger picture is you can start developing bad habit patterns, and you may not grow as much as an aviator. Uh, so you always want to be growing, you always want to be getting better, getting a little bit better every day. So having uh, a variety of people that you fly with who have different techniques, different knowledge levels, uh, different experiences, that grows you as an aviator. So yes and no, uh, it's important to fly together because you can really work well together as a team the more often you do it. But you also may not be growing as much, so we'll kind of swap people out every now and then. So we would do like on, on deployments, we'd usually kind of fly hard crewed for like a month or two, and then kind of start swapping the pe- people in and out. You know, we we'd work to swap experience. Like as when I was uh, a young wizzo, I would fly with an experienced pilot. As I became a more experienced wizzo, I would fly with a less experienced pilot. Now as an I'm experienced pilot, I fly with young wizzos. Sometimes I can fly with old Wizzos and then we just, you know, wreck shop and it's, it, it, you kind of have a mix of it.
0: So if a wizzo's not a pilot and something happens to Biff as the pilot, you have a heart attack or you faint in the, in the cockpit, God forbid, can the Wizzo mm-hmm. take, can the Wizzo take over that aircraft and successfully stay in combat or does he or she have to turn around and return to base right away because they're not ready to take that, that aircraft into combat?
1: Yeah, so one of the nice things about flying a Strike Eagle uh, is that there is actually full controls in the back cockpit. Uh, so the wizard can can take the jet, has got the stick and throttles, uh, can actually fly the airplane. And a, a lot of wizards were really great at flying airplanes. Uh, I think like to think that I was pretty good at uh, flying from the back seat. Uh, that's why I went and ended up flying from the front seat. Um, so, but that's it's again going to be like an experience thing and an ability thing uh, that they, that they could fly the airplane and the strike Eagle. I mean, if you're in combat, right. Like you're going to need to have both people fully engaged. So I imagine if I had like some catastrophic thing or I got shot, you know, God forbid, like hopefully the Wizzo is going to take me home and, uh, and, and, and save my life. Um, there've been a lot of instances, uh, when the pilot is kind of screwed up. And the Wizzo ends up taking the airplane and saving the air, saving the day, which is a great thing. Uh, and the F-15, in the airplane I currently fly, in the F-18, uh, in most of the versions and in the combat versions of it, there isn't a stick in the back, uh, so you're kind of on your own up there in the front. The Wizzo's got a couple of ways that they can use um, the autopilot functions in order to maybe save the airplane uh, in the F-18, um, but the F-18 Wizzos don't fly uh, as much as like the Strike Eagle Wizzos do.
0: Is there anything that stands out? I know that we're coming to the end of our initial talk. I want to do part two ASAP because I want to get get more into the actual missions. And and I'll talk to you off record as far as like what you can get into because I'm really intrigued by – the actual firefight part of this is that the vision part of what you're described today, and then you also are going off of of the controls in the plane, which I've been told by pilots in your position that there's not a lot of controls, and it's pretty simplified. I want to kind of get into what that looks like when you're in that cockpit and what it's laid out about. But talk to me, when we, when we get on part two, if I want to get more into what you're actually doing in a firefight. What are you responsible for? Do you know that you have to hit this button, but you might have to transition over to this. And when you do transition over to that, do you have to turn this off? And like, what is all going through your mind? As a hunter. I'm thinking like, well, if the ducks come in, I just, hit the safety off and I aim and I point and then I turn the safety back on and then I go out and I send the dog right well that's this is a lot different but I want to see how comparable it is as far as like what your mind's going through and how you're transitioning from one weapon to the next plus you're looking down there and you're seeing your brothers and sisters in this firefight so you're like you got to react and you got to be precise in your reactment or in your reactions so I want to get into that more but Mm -hmm. what stands out in this initial conversation what has stood out the most to you of being a fighter pilot Um, do you have a brotherhood that will never be broke with your, with your other fighter pilots and the guys that you came up with, the girls that you came up with in training through the academy, going to theater with them? Has anything struck you down? Has anything ever come to you that's presented you like, man? i didn't expect this man i wasn't ready for this i wasn't prepared for this did somebody that you trained with did they get perished and did did they perish overseas Did, did anything happen and i want to start building on this part of the conversation as we transition into part two and three but is anything just keep you up at night biff does anything keep a smile on your face does anything keep you sad what does what what emotionally are you going through so far after being in theater as many times as you had and serving as many missions as you have?
1: Yeah, but well, that's a that's a big question. So I'll try to start uh, unpacking a little bit of it. Uh first off, you know, the brother and sisterhood of a fighter squadron. That's um and particularly when you go to war together, right? Like like my best friends in the world are the guys that I've gone to combat with. Like hundred percent Those are my best friends in the world. They're the guys that you know, we are kind of all strung across the globe. Guys that I went on uh, my first couple of deployments with, some of our, some of them are out of the Air Force now. Some of them are overseas uh, doing different things. Uh, we're all kind of, you know, I'm I'm off doing a goofy Navy thing for a couple of years. Um, but the guys, you know, the men and women that you go to combat with, those are going to be your friends for life, for sure. Uh, the fighter squadron uh, squadron life uh, is a very tight knit organization um, by design. Right, because you have to be able to trust the people that you're going to fly with while you're while you're flying combat. Um, so that's kind of the first part of that. Yeah, those are the people that I'm closest to in the world. Um, you know, I'm not married, uh, so I don't have a spouse uh, to compare that to. Um, but from my friends who are married, uh, I think that you know the, the squadron. Life and uh, that brotherhood and that sisterhood is as close as a bond between a spouse, uh, particularly once you've gone to war. Um, leading into kind of your second question about like those tight bonds uh, and friends that you've lost, uh, yeah, I've, I've lost a good number of friends uh, over the years, um, both to uh, combat accident, combat, uh, as well as to accidents uh, both in combat and in training. Um, yeah, I've lost a couple of friends, uh, and we kind of—you remember them. You think back on it. Uh, I wear, you know, a a, a, um, a KI bracelet for two of my friends that were killed in Afghanistan back in 09. Um, and yeah, you think about them a lot. Uh, you think you think about them a lot, particularly, um, you know, as deployments come and go. Uh, you kind of remember them as the anniversaries of, of their, you know, of their deaths come and go you always kind of think back on them uh have a moment of silence and uh remember the lives that they led so yeah uh that that is a big thing
0: do you still talk to their families do you call their wives or their spouses or their cousins or their brothers and sisters and say hello once in a while did you have a a bond with them that was that deep
1: yeah yeah you do uh you know some of them obviously closer than others and as that list has grown larger over the years and as time passes, we kind of go very separate ways. Uh, but yeah, there's still a couple that I still, I still keep in contact with.
0: So knowing that you went through that and the way we started this conversation, but you also are sitting here telling me now that you've lost people close, but again, it might come as an expe- expectation of doing what you do for a living. So has that ever made you question or regret your decision for being in that cockpit of seeing those friends perish?
1: No, not at all. No, it just, it's, it comes with the job, you know. And and like when we were in training, uh, even going all the way back to being at the academy, you know, like I knew that everybody you start with isn't who all you're gonna finish with. You know, that's just—that's just part of it. Um, you, know, you just gotta be good and hopefully be a little bit lucky too.
0: So as we transition into part two of this conversation, Biff. Do you think that you will be in theater again? I know you want to be. At 37, do you think you will be?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's always wars to fight.
0: And you're prepared. You're ready. Right now, you could go right now.
1: Bag's already packed, man.
0: Are your abs in good enough shape? Like, do you have to have strong abs to be in the cock? Like, how important is physical training? I want to get into this in part two, too. Do you have to stay in top tip physical training to to be the best fighter pilot imaginable? Like, do you got to have a strong core, your abs, your your neck muscles, your bicep? Do you have to be a physically strong person? Or does that, do you maybe not have to be, but does it help?
1: It absolutely helps. Yeah, absolutely helps. Uh, Because if you can't take... You know, the G-forces and uh, you're physically suffering uh, while, flying an airplane, while flying an airplane, you're not going to be as mentally engaged and 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 be as effective in combat. So absolutely, uh, you have to, and it helps to be in the best shape possible.
0: So I want to get into that as far as your bags are packed and you're ready to roll. I want to get into the life that you live after. as we get into these missions you're living and you're in between deployments. I want to get into the regiment. I want to get into the mindset of when you're a baseball player and it's a month out of spring training you might go to vegas for one last hurrah and then you get to spring training and you nut down a little bit and you start you know Mm -hmm. really getting in shape to go through that 162 game it's grueling season for baseball is a fighter pilot or is it is it gym time is it training is it nutrition is it mindset is it focus drills is it systematic breathing drills i want to get into everything that that your life pertains like i look at you and i have a conversation with you and it's just second nature like oh yeah i go there and i get in the Gun, I got drop bombs and I'm over here and I'm taking off at 3000 feet and I'm going 500 miles an hour. Like that shit's crazy to me. I want to get into your mind. Like, how are you, how do you live your regiment regimented life of being at the top fighter pilot that you can be in the Navy and the air force and what you've done? Um, I just find it fascinating, man. I just find it so fascinating that that stuff really goes on and that I don't know what our media depicts and how we've learned through it, you know, through the media's eyes of seeing what our veterans and what our active duty military does. But talking to you, it's almost, it's just a freaking job. You said that quote unquote, it's a job. And that's part of the job. And that and that's just so fascinating to me because it's not. It truly isn't. And for you to have that mindset, I want to dig into that a little bit, Biff, of like, how do you live your life? Like, can you have a FaceTime conversation with me and Tim Montana, which, by the way, I want to get into him more because that dude's badass. He's, he's, a, he's a great American and just a stud human being. And his wife is awesome. His family's awesome. Um, but you can have a FaceTime video with a whiskey over that, but you have this regimented life that you have to be prepared at all times. It's like, I want to get into that a little bit, man. So I'm fascinated by what you do. I'm humbled that you would come onto the podcast and share it. And I just want to give our listeners and our audience an idea that this stuff is going on. And then maybe it'll spark somebody. Hey, I have, uh, maybe it's a recruiting process that we can get it, get it out there that, Hey, this is an awesome lifestyle and to get people more, you know, enthusiastic about, becoming a fighter pilot maybe and i don't know if that's even needed in today's sure. military i would i would assume it is
1: uh, right. absolutely it is man we're always looking for the uh the top tier and people who want to get after it um i love it it's been a great life for me uh and i'm happy to get into to some more of that the discipline of being a fighter pilot
0: i i want to get into that because i i am so intrigued because i am a duck hunter and duck hunters are looked at like i oh, could just be you know 350 pounds and stand up against a tree and chew some Copenhagen and spit every (laughs) once in a while and blow your duck whistle. And, and here they come in. Well, I want to, I want to be, I want to do things different. I want to be more regimented. I want to have be more disciplined. I want to be the fighter pilot of duck hunters. And I don't, I'm not taking anything away from what you do. I'm just saying the mindset, man, the focus and just how you get through that. And then on top of all of it, you're still taking the responsibility of aiming a gun or a bomb at another human being and taking that life to save another life. To me, it's unbelievable, bro. So kudos to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for what you do for our country. And I, I can't wait to get back on part two. And uh, we'll talk. We're, we're, we'll get into this deeper and deeper, man. I truly appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, you bet, Chad. It's my pleasure. The dude abides. We're all equal. That's what I think. I don't believe heaven has a bank. Make good use of your time on earth. And don't make a dollar bill all this world. Cause I'd rather be